Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome Gordon Lord onto the Golders podcast. Gordon is an ex-professional cricketer and now coach mentor. Gordon has worked for the ECB, the RFU and many other organisations, helping the people within those circles become even better at what it is they do. Gordon now mentors coaches across multiple sports and shares some wonderful stories and insights in this podcast. Enjoy. Gordon, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Golders podcast today. For those who are less familiar with who you are, could you just share with us a quick background in your story, both as a, an athlete and as a coach? Sure. Uh, David, Keith, it's a real pleasure to, to be with you today and um, yeah, delighted to. So my background in, in sport was as a, a youngster, I was a, a cricketer, obviously I was at school like most other kids of that age and, and fell in love with the game really when I was at school. I was very fortunate to be at a school where, where cricket was played and then joined a local cricket club and became part of that junior section there and progressed through the age group ranks at Warwickshire, which is my county, um, and did okay as a youngster. Started off as a spin bowler and became a batter. We can perhaps talk about that later on. And then at the age of 15, was offered a, a summer contract with Warwickshire to play in the second team, which I loved and enjoyed. Still at school, obviously, so it was just for the summer holidays each year, and I did that until I left school. Um, and then played on a full contract for one winter in between leaving school and, and going to university again, which I, I loved and had a, a winter coaching in South Africa that winter. So that was my first sort of full-time coaching role, or would be a bit for six months. During that time, then I carried on with my, my coaching uh, and playing and finished playing in 1991, having been released by Warwickshire in 86 and had five years at Worcestershire as a professional cricketer and as I shared my winters between coaching abroad and also spending some time for four or five winters working for the Lucas Group in their engineering systems division in Solihull, working in training and development. So I had a sort of blend of, of sports development and people development in those early stages. Um, when I was released by Worcestershire at the end of 91, I joined a cricket development project called Whittingdale Project, which was the first group of cricket development officers in this country. Some time in and around schools and clubs coaching, um, and then um, applied for a national coaching role with the National Cricket Association, as it was then before it became the ECB, and was fortunate enough to get that. So became an age group national coach with England and um, also had some coach development responsibilities within the southwest region, which is lovely because that's where we're living now. We've moved back down to the southwest and spent 25 years with the ECB in a, a range of roles, going from a national coach to a uh, coach development manager to head of elite coaching, so you know, head of elite coach development. So work working really across the pathway and across the game with coach development. I had some brilliant experiences there. And then in 2000 and 
16 or 17, I can't remember. I, I, I left there and went to the RFU for a couple of years and did a very similar role within rugby, which was an interesting exploration of, of moving across sports. So taking the, the general capability of being a coach developer and transferring sports, seeing what, what was transferred and what wasn't, which was fascinating. And during my last three or four years at ECBM, during my time at the RFU, also did some work in consultancy with a range of organisations, including uh, the Premier League. So hence, I think this is how we've encountered each other through work in football, which has been absolutely fascinating. So working with the Premier League on, on their EHOC, their ECAS and their Elite Academy Manager programme. So three programmes. Um, and I'm currently now... Since April last year, running my own coaching consultancy called Get Coaching. Uh, and I have a range of different sporting and non-sporting clients, um, which allows me to explore people's potential and my potential in a way that I'm, I'm absolutely loving. And actually, fascinatingly enough, the, the nature of the current situation means that a lot of that work is remote and done electronically which has been a really good learning curve for me and absolutely fascinating in terms of how quickly one can adjust to creating rapport and understanding people using video calls as opposed to being in their presence which has been uh, a game changer for me. Go on you've obviously got a lot of experience in there but you have in parents who were involved in the medical profession your dad a surgeon mum a doctor and your uncle being a dentist you feel the background actually helped influence on what you now do in life? I think profoundly, yes, Keith. Um, I think at the time, I probably wouldn't have appreciated it so much. It's only really with the benefit of hindsight. I, I've understood the, the way in which my parents were and um, the opportunities that I was afforded and, and in some ways, I suppose, very privileged opportunities, really, to be able to go to a school where cricket was played, for example, was, was a, such a, a gift. Um, but the, the caring professions and the helping professions, which they were both in, I think have fundamentally informed the way I am as a human being. Um, so I'm always fascinated by the way that I'm, I'm drawn to somebody who's struggling as opposed to somebody who's doing well. It's a little bit like saying, when well, you did really well, you don't need a doctor, do you? A more modern way of thinking about that is, is that it's absolutely when you do, because you can be even better. Um, so, so in the same way as psychology has gone from being the treatment of people with mental ill health to, to a more positive approach in some respects, saying, how do we magnify and amplify our strengths? Then, then my philosophy around coaching now has moved towards a slightly more positive model. But my core would be I'm there to help. And um, I wouldn't be as arrogant as to call myself a healer. But I think also sometimes in, in coaching and mentoring, we'll perhaps talk about that later, I, um, I think there is an element of healing sometimes. When you mention the process of healing, mm. delve a little deeper into that. I'm curious about what you mean by that. Well, I'm 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 always intrigued by by how, particularly when it's played at a, um, a competitive level, but often prior to that as well, um, people's sense of self and their identity and their well-being or sense of well-being can come through how they perform in their sport. 
so the work of the coach is sometimes deeply invested in in how people are and how they feel about themselves so so helping somebody get better at sport sometimes can be a way of helping them get better and feeling better about themselves so gordon you've been a professional athlete you've also coached at numerous levels and mentored several different people across several different sports in your opinion what's the difference between mentoring and coaching my personal view would be that, that um, as a good coach, you sometimes mentor and as a good mentor, you sometimes coach. I think I see them as two interlinking circles, really. And the definitions around coaching and mentoring are many and varied. But essentially, people would say that as a, a coach, you're coaching for performance. And as a mentor, you're perhaps taking a more holistic view of the person. I think that as a coach... Sometimes you're foisted onto an environment, so it, you know you, you pick the team. Whereas in mentoring, quite often the person being mentored picks the mentor. So there are some fundamental differences, and I'm, but I think both are, in my view, deeply invested in, in the relationships that exist between coach and player or mentee and mentor. Um, so I don't think there's a bigger difference, as, as many people would suggest. The, the skills required to do it effectively are sometimes quite similar. So the ability to listen, the ability to challenge, the ability to support, the ability to notice, to analyse, to reflect, are all fundamental to both disciplines. So I'm, I'm not absolutely convinced that there's... I think sometimes we can limit ourselves. If we say this is going to be a coaching session or this is going to be a mentoring session and they're going to be mutually exclusive, then I think sometimes we can't be effective. So when working with people, what is your greatest curiosity? What they could become, I think. I guess that's informed by my own experience and some of the great coaches who had the ability to see me as I could be rather than either, as I was then. So my fascination with people is about how could they be rather than how they are. And to quote Tim Galway, how... I might be able to help them getting out of their own way to get there. So can you delve a bit deeper now in how you specifically build the relationships, Gordon, and what lets you know where you actually have to begin? I suppose that the start of it, and and we're all different, aren't we? And, And I would always seek to establish some sort of a rapport with, with a person that I've only just met. And often that will involve not being on the subject, but a genuine interest, um, a demonstration of, of some level of background and interest prior to the meeting. So almost to respect the person through doing your homework, if you like, without wanting to appear to be any sort of a stalker. <laughs> um, so, so building a rapport through some background knowledge, some careful listening, some good eye contact, through careful positioning, through good manners, through timeliness, through respectfulness. And depending on the person, sometimes there also needs to be some sort of a demonstration of capability or competence or understanding or expertise, which means that uh, if they aren't familiar with me or my background or my philosophies, then they may need to know a little bit. So I think sometimes in order to establish a pool, you have to 
be prepared to give some information about yourself. So be prepared to disclose some thoughts or feelings about a particular subject or some experience which they may relate to, I think is a very powerful way of building a, a relationship. Go on, we, we speak about in our book, you know, about athletes wanting three things. I'm sure mm. there are many more, by the way. But predominantly, they want to know that they can trust us. They want to know that they can learn from us. But they also need to know that we care for them. Mm. How important is caring? Now, what I mean by that, really caring about the person you work with. Mm. And what is the significance of this when we mentor? So when I read your book, I really liked that, Keith. And David, I, I really enjoyed reading that. And it is central, really, to my, my philosophy and, and that was informed many years ago um, in a conversation with a, a guy called Raymond Vanikirk, who I met at a, a dinner in London. And um, I had no idea who he was or what he did, but he was just a sports fanatic and he spoke endlessly about his passion for a range of different sports. And it was only towards the end of the, the meal that we were sharing in a group of people that um, I asked him again after that fourth time what he did and he explained to me that he was the global sponsorship director for Investec Wealth Management who obviously a major sporting sponsor not only the ECB but a number of other major sporting organizations individuals and after swallowing my embarrassment because I really should have known that because they were a major sponsor of ECB I was with at the time um, I asked him what it was that he looked for in organisations or individuals in order to make the long-term investments they did. And he said, we look for three things and three things only. We look for expertise. We look for trust. And the one which people don't get because they think we're a big money machine and money eats hard, we look for likability. And in some ways, I, th I think there are... Um, there are elements of your use of the term care, which almost mean that, that, that in order to be likable, you, you have to demonstrate care. So I think our philosophies are related because certainly I've applied um, Raymond's um, criteria to looking at coaches and people in, in environments and noticed when, when if people have great expertise, but they're not trusted or liked, they won't necessarily be successful, in fact, highly unlikely. They can actually be trusted and they can have expertise, but if people don't like them, the first time they trip up on something, people are going to bury them. So I think that the, the care bit almost comes out of that in, in that there's a richness in a relationship and a depth, which means... Um, I noticed on your, your email signed-off, you had Maya Angelou's quote about um, people won't remember what you said or did there remember how you made them feel and that feeling of being cared for i think is a fundamental human need and it doesn't matter if it's a, a maverick super international or it's somebody who's just finding their way we're all finding a way aren't we so we all need to feel that somebody cares and um, i think it's a really important thing i know in, i've experienced it personally in, in 1985 i was very fortunate to pass the what was it's now the UEFA air license it's now it was called the full badge back then but you know the the value of receiving a gift from somebody it was an unwritten letter from Dick Bert mm. the bo our books mm. dedicated to Dick mm. and it helped provide an element of belief in me that didn't exist at that time yeah 
Have you ever experienced similar acts of kindness and generosity? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful story. And, and um, it certainly resonates with me, Keith, in, in that probably through my, my young and adult life, there have been a number of occasions when people for whom I've had real respect have taken the time to express a gift. And I don't necessarily mean giving a present, but I mean, for example, when, when I was a, a young kid and, and I lost my contract with Warwickshire, um, one of the teachers from my old school, a guy called Roger Usherwood, um, who was a housemaster of the junior boarding school. I wasn't a boarder, but he was a sports fanatic and was hugely respected by all the kids there. And I had a lovely handwritten note from him, which basically said, um, no times are hard, keep your chin up, your natural um, exuberance and joy for life will get you through this. I look forward to hearing about your next step. And just a little thing like that, a handwritten note from somebody I, I knew, didn't know that well, but was obviously bothered enough and cared enough to write was, was so important. So that, that would be one example. When I, when I moved from Warwickshire to Worcestershire, so I was Warwick, released as a young player from Warwickshire, 25, 26 years old, um, moved to Worcestershire, spent the first half of my first season in the second team, and then um, had an opportunity to play in the first team. And the Worcestershire second eleven coach, a guy called Mark Scott, in his spare time was a calligrapher. And on my changing room chair, when I got into the dressing room for my first team debut for Worcestershire, there was a little note in a beautifully written envelope with Lordy on it in calligrapher's hand. And inside was a little note just wishing me well and saying how much he believed in me. So a little just like that meant an awful lot. Um, I had a note from Ian McLaurin, who was the chairman of ECB, when I, I led a, a global coach in 1999, and, and it was a big investment for ECB to do that. And uh, there were some challenges financially with it, but at the conclusion of the event, and he had not been able to be present, but he, uh, his wife was ill, so he hadn't been able to be there. But the very next day, there was a note in my inbox at, at Lord's handwritten by him saying congratulations great job well done that's made a real difference and so little gestures like that mean mean so much and probably one of my favorite stories and, and um I, can, I think i may have talked to you this about before keith but but one of the biggest influences in my early and later career has been the the work of tim galway uh, the inner game uh, series of books i think there's five or six now but the inner game of tennis was was a sort of bible for me as a young a young coach and it was given to me by by Neil Abley when I was still a player Neil Abley was the second level coach at Warwickshire and um I was a struggler I got the yips when I was born that means that I, I I lost all confidence and went to that terrible place I think a few people who've taken penalties will probably recognize the feeling when you almost forget which foot you've got to start on and um I suffered from that and it was a lonely old time and Abba's had the wisdom to encourage me to bat. So I, I managed to transfer my attention to that and taking my attention for away from the thing that I was struggling on was a masterpiece really. And it allowed me to recapture some of that as well. But it, one day when I'd struggled a bit, he gave me a copy of Tim Galway's book, The Inner Game of Tennis and said, read this, I think you'll enjoy it. And Many years later, I had the opportunity to invite Tim Galway over to Birmingham 
to run a seminar for a group of coaches who were from across sport. Tim, Tim was in London anyway, um, working for Barclays at the time, I think, as a consultant. And, and um, he came up to the Priory Club at Edgebaston. And I'd invited Neil to come to both days, but he couldn't do day one. So on day two, Tim had run a brilliant first day. On day two, we we're all sat in there and Tim came in and he said, oh, good morning, everybody. I'd love to have a run through with you. What we covered yesterday, we've got three or four new people at the back of the room today joining us. And uh, it'd be great for them to hear your views about what we talked about yesterday. So the way we're going to play this is I'm going to start a story with how we started yesterday. And then if you could just give me a signal and you can pick up the story and talk about your reflections from what came next. And it was a wonderful way of just bringing the room together, recapturing the learning. And we went for about 45, 50 minutes. And at the end of that, Tim said, well, thank you so much. I've learned plenty from listening to you today and I've learned about what it is that we do here. Um, can I just say before we start that um, we're joined by some people I mentioned before who, uh, who weren't able to be with us yesterday and, and one in particular, Neil, it's fantastic to have you here. Last night Gordon mentioned to me that uh, a number of years ago you very kindly gave him a copy of The Inner Game of Tennis and um, he said to me how much that had affected him. It's very important that we all agree that, that without your simple act of human kindness on that day, none of us would be sat in this room here today because Gordon may not have known me in order to invite us all. So my message to you, he said to everybody, is never, ever underestimate the impact of a small gesture of human kindness. And I think that relates again back to your point about caring. Caring enough to make that observation. Caring enough, it was over dinner that I told him the story and he was listening. And he may or may not have thought at the time, I need to mention this when Neil's in the room, but he did. And it had a huge impact on Neil and on me and on everybody else in the room. The act of kindness, the act of giving, it could be a simple little gesture that goes such a long way. And you've touched on four little gestures there that you've remembered that at the time we could say, well, it was just a letter. But if you fast forward however many years, there are things that still have an impact on your life. And I think that's how much power a simple gesture can do. So along with that, in chapter seven in our book, we talk about praise, effective praise, being specific with our praise and also knowing who you're praising. I know you've got a, a brilliant story with a cricketer that you worked with. If you wouldn't mind, could you share that with us? Yeah, sure, Thank, thanks for reminding me. Um, so a context would be that, that as a, a young player, I was somebody who lacked confidence, um, somebody who searched inside himself for, for the reasons why I couldn't be as good as everybody else, somebody who looked at everybody else and saw what they did well, but looked at myself and saw what I couldn't do well. So my starting position was one of needing endorsement, needing praise, and um, I responded well to it. And I also noticed, though, that, that there were times when, when those coaches who praised me all the time, it almost felt a bit pointless. And I, I took more probably from those coaches who... Um, Neil was one of them, Neil Abley was one of them, who, who you needed to something, did something blooming good to, to get the well done. That was great, as opposed to 
some of you are saying that's great well done keep going keep going that's brilliant well done well done and um nevertheless realizing all of that when i then became serious about my coaching I, my default was always to coach people in the manner to which i would have probably liked to have been coached myself you know there's an old expression isn't there do unto others as you would have them do unto you and my realization actually was was more do unto others as they would do unto themselves because it's not always what you need it's what they need and, and my story was that I, I in my second year as a national coach i was working with an england under 14 squad uh, we were playing against south africa at loughborough and there was a young lad called ben Holyoke. and any cricket people enthusiasts who are listening to this will recognize the name of it a young kid who's very, very sadly passed away in his 20s, having played for England. Um, but at this stage, he was just an outstanding young talent. He'd been selected to play for England um, at under 14 in this series against South Africa. And um, frankly, he was in dreadful nick. So he'd been picked on reputation, on current form and performance. And um, on the eve of the first game, we, we were over in the nets at Loughborough. And I took it upon myself to go and throw some balls and try and get him feeling more positive about his game, thinking how terrible he must be feeling and you know how worried he'd be about going into this series when he was in poor form. And so I was throwing balls to him and he was striking them okay. And I was saying, great, that's well done, Ben. That's, you look fantastic. Well done. And after about three minutes of this, he wandered down the net and quietly said, uh, Gordon, you don't mind if I call you Gordon, do you? I said, no, of course I don't, Ben. He said, look, I know I can play. I know I'm good. I don't need you to keep on telling me that. Can you just tell me what I need to do to get better? And it was the most, it sat me down in terms of, hang on a minute, this kid isn't me. He's not like me. He deeply believes in himself. He might not be in great nick at the moment, but all he wants to do is get better. He doesn't need picking up. He can pick himself up. So it was a massive realisation for me about the fundamentals of human difference and and. From that point on, I became massively fascinated with human nature and how we're all different and how in order to get the best from people and help people get the best from themselves, to help them get out of their own way, some fundamentally different approaches are needed. And uh, that was a realisation for me because he was completely the opposite pole to me. That was the story you were asking about, was it? It was. It was. <laughs> yeah, great. great. <laughs> it's a great story. And I think it really does highlight that you have to know who you're working with. Because if you don't, if you don't get an understanding of who you're working with, you might actually not be influencing them in the way that you want to, to positively affect them. Yeah. yeah. Now, along with that, when you're working with and connecting with people, the quality of the questions that you ask can help directly influence the person's thinking. Now, I, on a conversation I had with you probably about two or three weeks ago, Gordon, with what's going on during the, the current climate with COVID. We had quite a, a good conversation and you talked about trapdoor questions, questions that make you, you fly, questions that can make you fall. And I know those questions came from, from Keith Lyons, who was someone that's, mm. that was very dear to you that really helped you on your path. Could you expand on those for me if possible? Yeah, sure. I mean, for for thanks for raising that. I mean, you're you're aware that it was Keith's funeral this morning, and, and um, he'd 
like so many others, had a profound impact on me. His impact probably greater than most. And and um, Keith was a remarkable man who who had an unbelievable gift of applying cutting edge research to practical situations. So he was a great coach, an even more brilliant mentor. If we're going to try to drive the description distinction between the two. And he used to come over to this country. He was doing a, a seven-year learning journey project with 10 of the ECB's top coaches and 10 of the RFU's top coaches, where he'd come over to this country twice a year and spend a minimum of a day each with them and then support them remotely for the rest of the year. So he was ahead of his time in terms of the sort of uh, communication methods that we're all using now while we're locked down. And wonderfully, actually, his funeral this morning, which was attended only by 20 to 30 people at the crematorium, was live streamed. And there were thousands and thousands of people watching it in a medium which he would have approved of. So it, it just felt absolutely right for, for that. One time he came over and um, he would have a theme usually to his visits. So a range of themes over the years. But his theme on this occasion was questions and it sounds a very fundamental theme really for somebody who's in, involved in coaching and, and mentoring and he said to me um i've been experimenting with something and i said what's that and he said trapdoor questions and i said what are those and he said well you know that that as coaches we quite often ask questions with a very positive intent of helping people fly so they're quite good questions in terms of helping people find the positive and find the good thing. I've been experimenting with something which is the opposite of that. I've been experimenting with asking questions which cause people to feel like uh, their stomach's fallen out their rear end and causes them some upset in terms of a, an uneasiness or a discomfort with the question. And um, I'm having great results with it. And I thought, please don't ask me one of those. <laughs> and... Um, he said, what most people don't realise is that, that the questions that make you fly have, in some respects, a very similar effect as the ones that make you fall. So the trapdoor makes you fall. What people don't realise that flying and falling are the same thing, just in the opposite direction. He said with a lovely smile and gave me a couple of examples of the questions he'd ask. He was very discreet and very careful about disclosing who he'd ask these questions to because they were very carefully considered born only can be asked when there's a strong rapport and a strong relationship in place but it's designed to cause people to fundamentally think differently about a situation in which they're telling themselves a story and it was a technique that i've used sparingly but used with great effect um since keith told me that story about 10 years ago and um i think it's just worth um, reflecting on whether or not the majority of questions we asked are supportive questions they all have to be supportive but sometimes the initial impact of the question can be much more challenging and um, cause people to go deeper inside themselves and begin to address things that perhaps they're not necessarily facing into so that that was Keith's trapdoor question and again as he had a gift just the name of the question, the trapdoor question, was something which allowed me to, to remember it and cling on to it in that sense. Everybody knows what it would feel like to fall through a trapdoor. And that's the feeling that, that the question is designed to create. And it can be asked 
without damaging a relationship if the relationship is strong enough and if the intent of the question is absolutely clear, which is, this might hurt, but it's going to help you. Gordon, in listening into that and the previous response that you've, uh, that you've answered before about Ben Hollyoke, where you mm. went into deep reflection about your practice, mm. rather than wanting to fix and players wanting... Mm. You know, they want things from us. They want to know that they can learn from us. And if we mm. do, they don't, they'll get rid of us. Mm. But how do you foster curiosity and belief in someone else? I think the two, curiosity and belief, um, let's start with curiosity. Um, so curiosity for me is, is um, somebody wanting to explore beyond what they perceive to be currently their edge almost so so how can you cause people to think like that by asking them a question which will spark their curiosity by creating an opportunity for them to bump into something which may be written maybe a podcast might be a video might be a might be a conversation with somebody else other than yourself which might stimulate something in them which will cause them to ask a different question of themselves or maybe ask a question themselves which they haven't yet faced into. So, again, I don't think there's a quick answer to that. It's a brilliant question. And I think some people are more naturally curious themselves. Some people are more naturally curious about themselves, and some people are more naturally curious about other people. So it's sometimes an internal, external thing. Um, some people are fascinated by the game itself as opposed to themselves some people are fascinated with process some people are fascinated with outcome so it's understanding what people's motivations are um you know is their motivation driven by a competition with themselves to be find out how good they can be or is it are they driven by a competition with others to want to be the best um so it's really understanding the person and making a decision on on what might spark their curiosity and what approach one might take to do that. So from a curiosity perspective, I guess that would be my attempt at a simple answer. And from a belief perspective, I think there's been, there's been a lot written and a lot practiced around self-talk and affirmations. Um, ultimately, my view is that belief comes from performance achievement. So, so, helping people find ways in which they can measure their success, which isn't necessarily just based on the ultimate outcome. So belief comes in chunks. It comes in bite-sized chunks, I think, and it builds. And the more you feel you've achieved, um, if somebody says, well, I, I never get picked, uh, how can I believe in myself? Then they're playing the wrong game with themselves because it's not about getting picked it should be about finding ways to measure their improvement towards getting picked so belief comes in dave dave already actually talks about feeding the canyon of the mind with facts so helping people find facts about what they've achieved is a really good way to build belief there's a, a great video it's actually one of my favorite videos that my dad actually showed me and, and he uses in presentations that he mm has done as well with Frank Dick. Yeah. Where he's at the he's at a racetrack and a young girl comes over and asks Mr. Dick, can can you teach me? Can you work with me? And he he agrees to it. He does. He he works with the young girl and 
spends a bit of time together and on the first race she comes eighth out of eighth in 19 seconds and she comes off the track and says I came last and he said you didn't come last you came in 19 seconds and you know what that means that means you broke the 20 second mark it's your new personal best and that in itself gives that belief to somebody that it's not about competing although we we want to win I think in sports we're competitive in nature that we do want to win and when you're in a race you want to come first but he also mentioned that if you come first and you run 25 seconds then have you really achieved something because you've not beat yourself you're competing against yourself and that that's a video that really sits deep with me so I just wanted to jump in on that because it was yeah. something that resonated with what you said. Yeah, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant story, Dave. Thanks for that. I, I, Frank Dick, I have so much respect for, and, and he's one of those rare people that has the ability to speak to one person and they feel incredibly special. And he also has the ability to speak to 10,000 and every in the room can feel special. So it's an extraordinary gift that he has and his ability to use language and to translate into emotion his words uh, is, is extraordinary so it's a wonderful story go on when you're working in a business or sporting context mm. in your experiences do you feel you have to have a specific field knowledge and or technical proficiency to get mm-hmm. which you mentioned earlier the you know connection rapport or or is it something where you it just organically develops. I, I, that's a really interesting question. And given my recent experiences in, in different sports, I'll come back to answering it. But I'll give you a, I'll, I'll tell you a, a little story which probably has informed my, my position on the answer to that. So, again, this would have been probably 15, 16 years ago. I was invited to go out to Sydney to um, a coaching conference. And there was a guy called Dr. Rick Charlesworth, who was leading one of the leading speakers at that conference, who at the time had just stepped down from being the most successful coach ever of the Australian Hockey Roos, the Australian women's hockey team. I think they'd been world champions seven times running under his lead. Remarkable track record. And I had the opportunity to not only listen to his story, but also speak with him. And some of the things that he said around his decision to enter coaching and to pursue elite coaching were around his belief that being a a great coach involved being a great student of human nature so before he started coaching he said that he thought deeply about who had been the greatest student of human nature had ever lived and concluded that would have been William Shakespeare and so prior to embarking on this this coaching career he read the entire works of Shakespeare and started to make notes on the observations on human nature that Shakespeare had said. And I had shared with him my story about the yips and, and losing my way as a young cricketer. And um, he said to me immediately, so when did you start bowling again? And I said, well, I, I didn't really. Uh, it had been so painful. And, and um, anyway, I was batting more. And, and he said, our doubts are our traitors for off preventing, uh, prevent us attempting that which you might win. 
Our doubts are our traitors. They oft prevent us attempting that which we might win. I said, say that again. He said it the third time. And he said, you don't read Shakespeare, do you? And I said, no. And he said, well, um, that came from a play. I'm trying to remember. I think it was Measure for Measure. Um, and it illustrates the way in which sometimes we can stop ourselves attempting something for fear of losing. And I've said that to you because I believe that what stopped you having another go was a fear of it going wrong again. So now you probably never know, will you? And it was just hit me straight between the eyes how, how the bard had produced something which related so closely to my own experience. And he'd written the book. The book is called Shakespeare the Coach by Rick Charlesworth. I don't think it's in publication now, but you can occasionally pick up a, a copy um, on eBay, etc. And um, I would recommend that as a read for anybody who's really interested in coaching because it. It is a phenomenal study of people. So basically the book was in writing and lifting quotes from Shakespeare plays and then um, identifying sporting stories which would relate to them. And that was incredibly powerful. So I would love to say that my area of specialist knowledge would be the human condition, would be human nature, but it's not an area of specialist knowledge. It's something which I'm acquiring and been fascinated by and have been for years and years and years now so I wouldn't say I'm a specialist but it's a fundamental part of what I would bring to a coaching and mentoring relationship so no I don't bring any massive specific expertise but that would be the area of fascination that I have and um, I think that it's probably so well it's certainly been effective in terms of my personality and the way I am I wouldn't say that it's something which everybody should do, but I suspect that being reasonably adept and skillful at understanding the people rather than necessarily just being understood would be a fundamental part of being effective. So other than picking up usual traits, Gordon, like being told to leave me alone, what lets you know when to leave someone alone? Have you seen, have you seen the film Nanny McPhee? I have, but I can't remember... Much of it would have been a long, long time ago. Well, Nanny McPhee said, and I wrote this down earlier on, when you need me, but you do not want me, then I must stay. When you want me, but no longer need me, then I have to go. So recognising when a player needs you, even if they don't want you there, means that you continue to have some input. If they just want you around, then sometimes it's time to spend some time away from them. Now, that, that would be a bigger picture. Obviously, there are times when, you know, if a player's had an immediate disappointment or something, you don't go to the dressing room and, and start analysing what, what happened, etc. So there's some sort of common sense judgments around. But the signals that players send in terms of, and people send in terms of, now's not the time, are pretty obvious. Um, provided that we keep our eyes on them and and get our eyes off herself a bit. I think we're generally speaking, most people will make a good judgment about that. So I use the, the um, perceptual positions approach from NLP a lot in my work. And so would generally speaking, firstly try and see the situation through their eyes, um, try and get an understanding of what they're feeling and thinking and seeing before making any, an intervention. So 
the timeliness of it and the content of it and the style of it and the judgment around it would be informed by my perception of how they're seeing things at the time and that usually informs a, a decision and that can be that's very relationship specific isn't it so so depends on the level of trust in the coaching relationship etc that will inform when when the time is right um, i think there's a, a tendency probably and i've certainly exhibited it as a coach to want to help too much to want to offer too much and the um Keith, Keith Lyons used to say that um, uh, if you want to be really effective, say half of what you were going to say. So, so I think probably that involves you know stepping back, stepping out of the way sometimes because uh, sometimes as coaches, I, I mentioned Tim Galway earlier on. Tim's performance equation in all, all of his books is performance equals potential minus interference. And I think sometimes as coaches, we can produce an, a level of interference through really well-intentioned feedback or feed forward. And sometimes we're better off letting people keep their noise levels down, their interference levels down, and therefore allowing their potential to be reflected in their performance. So Gordon, you've worked in around national governing bodies. And I'm curious, when you're working in high performance environments, what challenges do you generally face? By high performance environments, do you mean um, team environments? Or do you mean general environments where high performance is an expectation in terms of personal performance? The latter. Right, okay. Um, my, my, my experience of, of high performance environments um, actually has been quite limited if I reflect on what a high performance environment really is and um, Steve, Steve Ball the, the England psychologist for so many years has also written a number of brilliant books mental game plan being amongst them always talked about high performance environments being high disclosure feedback rich environments so so in order for an environment to be considered high performance, then people have to be open to giving and receiving really clean feedback. And people need to be prepared to disclose their hopes and their fears to their teammates. And I'm not necessarily talking about necessarily just sporting teams, but that stuck with me as far as um, what is a high performance environment where feedback is given positively, willingly, and very much for the purpose of improving somebody's performance. Um, it's owned by the person giving it and it's very specific feedback. So the challenges are sometimes in high performance environments because they're quite fast moving, um, is that the time to build the level of relationship and trust which makes that easier is sometimes very limited. So the tyranny of time in high performance environments is something which I've noticed. Um, and therefore, getting there quickly, but in a way which will land and stick, is is always the, the challenge. I guess people who are in high-performance environments and high-performing environments also necessarily feel they're on the edge, and therefore there's a competition around the edge, and therefore there's a sense of vulnerability about their positions. 
I've experienced more ego probably in high performing environments than in other environments. So people with bigger media profiles, bigger profiles sometimes have uh, opinions of themselves and therefore of others, which, which um, create challenges. But there's also a, um, an excitement, isn't there, about a high performing environment where there's a, there's a sense of movement and momentum and purpose, which is sometimes absent in less high performing environments. So um, I don't know if I'll ask you a question, but it's a really interesting question. Does that cover what you're asking? Yeah, I mean, it's a, <clears throat> we're giving a, a perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And that's merely neither right or wrong. Yeah. I think what it provides is, is clarity in knowing that, you know, when you're working in an high performance environment, the, the outcomes and the direction tend to be more purposeful. Yeah. There's an yeah. objective, yeah. not all the time, of course, but it tends to yeah. be, tends to be, you know, we're moving with a purpose. We're moving with an yeah. energy in, you know, sometimes the outcomes are very clear and it draws and magnetizes to move quicker yeah, to get yeah, towards that yeah, end goal. Yeah, yeah. So, Gordon, what lets you know when you're in the presence of greatness of somebody special? Well, I've got a, I've got a fundamental belief that everybody's special, um, that everybody has the potential to be great. So, my starting point would be. Um, to expect greatness from everybody and, and um, to communicate that sort of high expectation. I think when somebody is actually, rather than has the potential, when somebody is actually great. I, um, I love telling the story about when, when I, as a young player, I was playing for Warwickshire and, and um, we were playing against Leicestershire and, and David Gow was playing, the England captain at the time. And, what a phenomenal play was brilliant and and the manager then david brown who was a great man um said lordy you will you'll get a sense of a change in atmosphere in the ground when david walks on the ground when david cow walks on the grass you'll know and i was standing in the gully fielding and um david came into bat and he came in at three and there was a tangible change in the atmosphere at Edgebaston when this guy walked on the floor. And whether or not that's driven by what he'd achieved, um, what people's expectations were, or whether or not there was something about the confidence that exuded from him, the way he moved. He moved like a cat. He was a phenomenal athlete. And the calmness he had, the purpose, the the stillness of his eye, the, I don't know what it was, but there was just that sense that there was something special going to happen, and it did. And I've experienced similar feelings when, when I played for Warwickshire against Worcestershire second 11, and the great Basil D'Oliveira was captain of Worcestershire second 11, and at the age of 52 or 53, he came out batting number 11 and we got a couple of fast bowlers, including West Indian test bowler. And Basil came out with a helmet on and just took him to pieces. Age 53, I think he was. And there was just that feeling of you're in the presence of someone which is quite extraordinary. 
Um, I've met some remarkable people more recently. Um, Pat Jennings introduced to me by John McDermott down at Spurs recently, and he was one of my childhood heroes. And to spend some time in the company of such an extraordinary man gave me goosebumps. So there, there are, and I don't know what it is, is it the weight of knowing what, what they've done? Or is it something that comes from them? And there's a sense of clarity, of purpose was a word we used earlier on. Um, and in some, an astonishing sense of humility as well. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that one because I think, again, that there is something, but I think it varies from, from great to great, doesn't it? Um, but it, what interests me more is, is the belief, the fundamental belief that, that everybody that we meet has the potential to become great. And um, with that in my mind, I'm wondering if that has, in this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy approach to, to life, whether or not that actually has a positive impact on people. If somebody knows that, that somebody has a, a deep-seated belief that they have potential to be something that probably has a positive impact on them. Gordon, it's, it's very evident you're a, you're a people developer. You know, you articulate your message very, 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 very well. Are there any occasions, though, where you've actually used third parties to get your message across, where it's, it's done silently, it's done through a silent whisperer, it's done through mm. another means so that the impact is significant, although, you know, you've been in the background, if you like, being mm. a grey man? Um, yeah, I, I love the piece in your book about the coach whisperer and, and um, the use of um, other people has been a fundamental part of my work over many years and probably more significant in terms of it's significantly more significant in terms of its impact on people than I've, I've been able to be myself so I love to um, uh, Dr. Zella King wrote a brilliant book called Who's in Your Personal Boardroom? And in that book, she, she talks about how strategic we need to be about designing our own board of directors um, for a personal level. So who do we have in our boardroom who has expertise in this, who has expertise in that, if you like? Who are our group of mentors? And one of the questions I often ask coaches and people that I'm mentoring is, who have you got in your boardroom? And quite often people have got two or three and they aren't very strategic about it and there are gaps in terms of the expertise that can be offered. So an exploration of where people's needs are in terms of fostering further expertise and then and skill and who they have access to means that quite often helping them find other people who may ultimately sit in their boardroom is a really important part of the coach developer's role because certainly I wouldn't have all that expertise. So fostering a network of, networking has got a bad name, but uh, fostering a network of people who are prepared to help, people who are prepared to contribute to others 
is a fundamental part of what I do. And so, yes, the, 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 and quite often I, I wouldn't know what it is that I want people to get about, get better at, but I know somebody they could talk to help, might help them find that. So it's not always me sort of trying to orchestrate, in fact, rarely is trying to orchestrate things or hold the reins. Um, it, it's more uh, seeing the potential in somebody, not quite understanding how they might be better, but knowing somebody who might have a better understanding with me and, and introducing them. So, so that's the way I would operate. You're, you're just using, uh, I call, you're, you're a postman. You're just a conduit. You're using... Yeah, 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 I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Gordon, I'm going to change tack slightly. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to find a good mentor? Talk to people. Talk to people who you may or may not know. Um take opportunities to meet new people because um, my experience of the, the mentoring relationship is that there's usually a click fairly early on. So, so um, quite often in, in mentoring programs, there's a sort of chemistry meeting where you'll meet a potential mentee and then the mentee will make the decision um, about whether or not you work together. And it's frankly, pretty obvious when you've had a, a meeting with somebody whether or not they're going to say yeah i'd like to be mentored by you or not so so um don't choose a mentor unless <laughs> you've had a chance to have a proper chat with them would be one i would be very reluctant to recommend selecting a mentor from a cv or anything like that so i'd make sure that, that, that you have the opportunity to meet them and see whether or not there's any chemistry or rapport there which allow you to work together. Don't assume always that because somebody's been a good mentor for somebody else, maybe somebody you know well who's said, talk to this guy, talk to this woman, they're brilliant. They may not be brilliant for you, so, so it's about you and them, not about them and somebody else. So, so really make sure it's right for you. Understand where they're skill set lies have some clarity about what it is that you'd like to get out of the relationship and then recognize that i always say i always say to a mentee i'll match your effort but i ain't going to work harder than you so so this concept of matched effort means that in order to get the most from mentoring relationship you've got to be prepared to do some work um, because the mentor isn't there to do it for you. The mentor is there to challenge, support you to do it yourself. Um, so if you're not prepared to work, don't go wasting anybody's time looking for a mentor, including your own. Gordon, final question, because we yeah. could be here all day. We'd love to listen to some of these wonderful anecdotes, your experiences, the quotes. But I'm going to ask this question. Where do you stand with John Wooden's quote? Good coaches change games. Great coaches change people, change lives. For somebody who has a, a, um, a preference for people, that absolutely resonates. In the immediacy of the high-performance world, and he was pretty high-performance, wasn't he? I've read a lot of John Wooden's stuff, and he was remarkable. Um, I, I would say I completely concur with it. Um, 
um, and people will be distracted by the game. But ultimately, when the athlete is no longer an athlete, they look back on their life. They would point to John Wooden and say, you fundamentally transformed my life. And uh, I think he's content with that. He's fulfilled by that. And certainly that, that, that resonates with me. It won't resonate with everybody, but it resonates with me. It's a brilliant quote, isn't it? Well, certainly is. Again, it it resonates. You know, the the dovetailing in the stories, the way we, I say we, even though we've recently bumped into each other, I resonate with how you operate mm. because of you know we need to care. We're in a human current human currency mm. rather than financial currency. And in our book. Richard Dobson, the first team coach and assistant manager at Wicker Wonders, goes into a lot of depth around that. Mm-hmm. And it it really hit home around it. And when I mm-hmm. when I heard the quote, John Wooden's quote, it it really hits home. You know, I think mm-hmm. what we want to do is do we work to develop the person or develop the athlete? I think they both go yeah. together. Yeah. But I think there's a syntax. I think yeah. to get the most yeah. from people, yeah. I think we've got to we've got to care for the person first, uh, and yeah. an element of and building an element of trust within them. Yeah. Gordon, yeah. it's it's been it's been a wonderful experience. This I I thank you for sharing your time today. How can people get hold of you? Well, first of all, Keith, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed catching as as I always do with you both. And um, it's a privilege to have had a chance to chat with you like this. Um, and I hope that people enjoy the conversation. I'll certainly enjoy your questions and enjoy my answers anyway. So um, I, I'm contactable via my um, company website, probably the best best way to get hold of me. So... If you go to www.getcoaching.net, then there's a, a contact button there. And if anybody wants to drop me a note, then I'd be happy to chat with them there. Thanks, Gordon. And I'm going to echo what my dad said over the past few months. And really, it's been since the release of the book. I think that's what's brought this together. There's been mutual connections where we've got to know each other, but... Over the past few months, we've had several conversations and I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I feel like I come away from the conversation a little bit wiser and with more clarity around what it is I'm doing. So I want to thank you for that. But I also want to thank you for coming on today. You've you've shared some great stories. You've shared some great insights. And for those people that have listened to this, I think they're going to take a lot from it. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you ever so much. See see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more, or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also, you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>